Hi and welcome to the episode 10 of the V-Suit Podcast, the audio-only virtualization radio show that you can eat between meals and it won't spoil your appetite. This is a special edition of the show for our 10th episode and recorded after the 9pm watershed, so it may contain some harsh language. So if you're offended by it, I suggest you stop listening now. Good, right, that's got rid of those bastards. Let's get on with the show. <laughs> Today's guest is Stuart Radnich of Vinturtles.com fame. Stuart claims to be not just another blogger and mixes some uh, hardcore virtualization skills in with his own unique brand of philosophy. Stuart, welcome to the show. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Yeah, thanks. thanks for joining in. So, what have you been up to? Um, I don't know. Not, not a hell of a lot, I guess. Um, you know, I just did a, a session last week at the uh, at the London VMUG, which was a, a special uh, a special sort of cloud focused uh, full day event with yeah, lots of sponsors kind of and stuff. The, the uh, largest yet, isn't it? I think they had. You were saying earlier about 150. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they had some labs and stuff. There. So tell us some shit about your presentation. <laughs> See, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I'm not gonna swear during. Actually, now I have to because we're talking about the presentation. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, um, I, I put the slide deck up on, um, you know, on, on the blog, and it, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense if you just uh, read it because if you've ever seen any previous stuff I've done, I, I tend to go pretty sort of zen with the uh with the yeah the PowerPoint, you're, you're so. quite powerpoint light which is good actually it's it's normally all in the talking from uh from previous ones i've seen yeah yeah exactly exactly and um so yeah i i guess like you know in that blog post i was saying i i don't think i got across the messages that well that i was i was trying to and and it was really two things one was that if you're building an internal you know infrastructure as a service or whatever you want to call it um it doesn't matter if it if it doesn't. Uh, what the hell's that? <laughs> <laughs> I can never sorts of crazy shit going on. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm gonna sure be 100 percent like, honest with you guys. Rice Krispies. No, it's not interference. Actually, to be 100 percent honest, I was trying to open a kebab quietly. Didn't work yeah. out for me. <laughs> See the big button that says mute. <laughs> <laughs> It's all, it's raw. It's, this is what raw is about. Something like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, one of them was that, um, a lot of applications that you'll get in um, in the enterprise today or, or, you know, wherever you work in businesses today um, that have been traditionally deployed onto physical hardware or even as VMs, they've traditionally been deployed into fairly static kind of environments. And so, you know, when you have a look at stuff, um, like rapid scale-out type functionality or cloning or, you know, dynamically resizing a VM, like scaling it up or down, um, there's a very good chance that the applications that you're running there are not actually capable of re either reconfiguring themselves or if, say, you had a, a Java app and when the JVM starts up, it grabs a certain, um, you know, heap size for for its memory, or you know a certain number of threads for garbage collection or something like that. Chances are, when you scale that up in CPU or memory, it's not going to dynamically reconfigure itself. And if your applications are not used to having that kind of functionality available, then th there's probably no automation in place to allow them to do that. 
So you've got to kind of question, is it worth building that kind of functionality? Because it can be you know, not trivial to to um, build in that kind of functionality, especially when chargeback and all that kind of stuff gets involved. Um, so, you know, do you really need it? Um, and then the other thing was just really talking about, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit of a bit of a code hacker, um, have have been for a while, and so I was really just putting a bit of a, an application or. There, there are tools and things that you, you have in the application world which you can also use to manage um, infrastructure. And so I was just sort of talking about some things you can do to, you know, for configuration management and stuff like that. Okay. So um, what this is for holding config just uh, your configuration management database, so using almost like a what source safe type thing or Git? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Um, so, you know, it's... Um, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know what the what the audience is like, but um, yeah, I mean, if if you treat your infrastructure configuration kind of like you treat source code, then it makes it really, really easy to you know you get versioning, you get branching. It's really easy to roll back. Um, you can deploy on mass, and all that good stuff. Um, you kind of you kind of just get for free, and it, you know these source control systems are not. Uh, difficult to learn, but as infrastructure guys, um, you know, we tend to not really open our open our eyes to that kind of stuff. That's interesting. I mean, I've used SourceSafe like many many years ago, just for holding uh, SQL scripts. I think just for you know, our, again, our configuration management standard set of scripts to configure a, a SQL database uh, you know, with all our monitoring and maintenance type stuff. Um, I'm just trying to. I'm wondering, how, do you just check in a an OVF template, or uh, actually check in the VM itself, or is it just more of a um, XML type information? Yeah, yeah. It's it's more actually within within the guest itself. So, um, yeah. One one of the things I was talking about, like in the in the presentation, was um, decoupling the the application from the operating system and from any base uh, set of libraries. So, you know, like, because, you know, a base a base platform and an operating system is really just a, you know, a massive bootstrap for, for something useful, which, which is your app. And if you have something like, you know, you require a certain version of Linux and a certain version of Ruby and a certain bunch of uh, Ruby gems to, and, and then you've got your application code, if your application code is completely segregated from the rest of that stuff, um, then when you talk about stuff like cloud bursting or scale out, you know, as infrastructure people, we we look at the cloud bursting problem and we go, oh gee, what if I'm running VMware internally and I don't know what that external cloud is running? Say it's running Xen. Uh, how am I going to, you know, get a whole bunch of new virtual hardware in there and reconfigure the operating system to? Um, pick up all that stuff and how you know transferring the personality of that VM out into the cloud and what about the amount of data that I'm going to have to push out there and all this kind of stuff but if everything is really decoupled then you know there's just absolutely no point in pushing all that operating system and base you know supporting libraries out there you can just fire up something out there in that external cloud and then drop your point to that same same repository so yeah man um, I guess I, I mean that's that's quite interesting because you know one of the the challenges I think 
between translating what a CIO or CTO has been told at a sales conference to what you actually have to deploy. Um, you know, they say, "Oh yes, you know, we can make make our uh, our applications like eBay." Really? Do you really want to have to rewrite the whole apps? You know, yeah. How, how is how is Exchange going to do that? How are you going to dynamically create mailbox servers on on the fly? You know, yeah, really. yeah. Um, and I think for the majority of these concepts, unless you've got an app that's written for it, you're kind of pissing into the wind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, yeah, it's funny. It's funny to see um, VMware go through this this kind of transition now because it's you know picking up all these companies that are in the you know the sort of SaaS and and other other layers of the stack and. Um, and you know it's. I mean, our our CIO has a one of his favourite sayings is is God could create the earth in six days because he started with a clean slate, and you know it, it's the same when you when you look at stuff like you know, some of the VMware management products and you think okay VMware on the on the one hand you're talking about PaaS and you're talking about cloud application architectures, and uh, can I point to virtual center application instances at the same database? Oh no, I can't. Oh, okay. Um, but you know, not, not it, to be obvious. a dick, but a guy that would make a claim like that, I would be very scared to work for. He's got to say, does, does clean sight imply that he's got to kill everyone first? Yeah, <laughs> he's going to either murder you and stab your eyes out. Something silly, something that scares the shit out of me. And get, gets rid of the layer seven problem though, so that, that'll work. Yeah, the layer eight, the layer eight problem. But you might um, wind up yeah. in some sort of weird yeah. cult sort of situation. <laughs> yeah, that's not. A good I guess look. I never thought of it that way. Maybe I'm missing something. <laughs> nah, you're no. just not as weird as me then. <laughs> it's oh, a, it's, it's way, so it's we don't all work for evil geniuses. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I'm too trusting. You know. <laughs> Must like working in underground layers. <laughs> see some data centers like that. Hmm. Yeah, definitely, man. Jeez, I can't remember the last time I went into a data center. It's not a bad thing. Yeah, you'd, would you definitely describe yourself? You're not particularly server huggy. No. Um, yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, that, that's the other thing I kind of struggle with sometimes it, with stuff that I write. I will. Or you know when I if I speak at VMAGs and stuff like that is um, I've I've never I've always worked in like really large companies and so I I don't know my my kind of perspective on things is probably you know completely relevant to a lot of people but it's it's really hard to it's, know that so it's probably really different from mine which is uh, basically that I I do anything everything uh, and configure anything uh, basically. So, you probably have a different perspective on a lot of stuff than compared to what I have. Yeah, which, and and which don't know a lot of stuff. Of course, makes it interesting. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> um, I, I mean, I remember, like, I'm sure, like, Christian, you're you, you've been blogging for like ages, right? I'm sure I read your blog when yeah. I was living in Australia, and um, you know, back when I was sort of getting started in IT and stuff like that, which. Yeah, that was probably about ten years ago. But um, yeah, yeah, I, you know, your name was definitely known to me before I, you know, moved to London and and got into the whole kind of uh, scene. As you're it were. a native, you're a native Australian, then. I am. I am. Um, 
Yeah, I, re- I relocated to London in 2007. And, um, well, yeah, it's been... awesome, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not bad. I mean, trust me, like, you know, when you get, like, 30, 30 years of, you know, six months of 30-plus degrees and, and no cloud, it, it you know, you, you get over it, sort of thing. But, but you know, Europe's right on the doorstep. And I mean, you're, yeah. Well, I mean, how long have you been in Switzerland? Ahead? Only it's only been about a year and a half for me. But uh, yeah, yeah. In comparison, I, the yeah, the weather we got we got very similar weather to London. Foggy all the time, stuff like that. You mm. get you get used to it. I, yeah, I suppose like you did. Yeah, definitely. But do you travel a lot? Like that was the main reason I came here to travel in Europe. Oh, just within Europe itself, or yeah, yeah. Yeah, they well, well, not well, not so much within Europe. They moved me here uh, for to work at headquarters, and then after that, they moved me basically all over the globe to work. So basically, oh, cool. out of the out of the one and a half years I've lived here, I've I've literally been in my house about maybe half the time. Jesus, that's yeah. pretty hard. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, oh, uh, yeah. So, sorry, Chris, was that? Uh, yeah, I just wonder how that Christian's would sounding like a monkey. <laughs> yeah, which is the usual way he sounds, so that's fine. Uh, I just wonder what that would do to my my family if I started doing stuff like that. That would be interesting, I guess. Uh, so I, I, I'm pretty stuck in, in in Norway with the kids and everything. So I'm, uh, which probably limits uh, limits me a bit uh, in some regards. But uh, but anyway, it's uh, I, I'm pretty happy not to be traveling. Uh, around all the time and, and not being the one that travels uh, on board our vessels and stuff and doing physical stuff on board with them. So yeah. I'm, I'm pretty happy to be stuck where I am, basically. But hey. speaking of Australia, I actually, I actually lived a year in Australia when I was a kid. Oh, yeah? Whereabouts? Perth. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Desert. <laughs> it's quite different <laughs> to Norway. Yeah, it's like the you think of Norway and think of the exact opposite. That's That's pretty much Perth. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I was only five years at the time, but we lived there for about a year, and I went to, for about one year in in your ordinary Australian school, actually. Ah. So, so I actually started a school a year earlier than we did in Norway back then, so when we moved back, I started back in first grade again, so I, I could read and write English before I could read and write Norwegian. Jeez. Oh, my condolences. <laughs> and, um... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, they actually have a branch of the Shaolin Temple in Perth, in Australia. There's like one of the monks moved out there and. Uh, oh, okay. Started up a, yeah, started up I didn't a, notice that when I was five years old. <laughs> I don't know. Oh. <laughs> you were five. I'll let you off. Yeah. But yeah, no. So um, uh, traveling is cool, you know. I mean, and yeah, we, we were saying before. I was uh, I was in Norway maybe six weeks ago, and uh, and and twisted my ankle snowboarding, which which kind of sucked, but. Um, yeah, I've been to a lot of places in Western Europe, so I haven't been to Turkey yet. Oh, it's yeah, Turkey's really cool. You know, stop by if you have a chance. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did see uh, Turkey mentioned in the news uh, this week about, uh, you know, how um, there's a fair few countries that are now sort of imposing sort of government levels of uh, censorship on their internet connections. Mm. And in Turkey, you have a choice, basically. You can have everything from, you can 
opt for a family friendly internet connection or you can opt for the more or less uh, unrestricted but it's still there are certain things that the Turkish government won't let you look at um, and it's in no way as restricted as sort of, you know, the, the Chinese concepts but uh, yeah it's, it seems interesting that they're trying to the government sort of stepping in on that Chris, when you, you talk about the Chinese concept, um, I, I, I traveled to Vietnam quite a lot, and they restrict it to the point where if they even catch you looking at any sort of pornographic material, it is $200 per video you have on your computer. Yeah, it's pretty pretty hardcore. And so you, really... had to, you had to format your laptop before you went <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I had to format that, all my USB drives, everything I had, basically. My whole collection was lost. I had to rebuild it for ages. No, just kidding. <laughs> not even an emergency stash on your phone. <laughs> I, I wonder if uh, the people listening to this had any idea at the beginning that uh, <laughs> we, we changed gears from... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear, dear, dear. This is well, that's a, but speaking about... The and stuff like that. I mean, Norway just recently decided to, uh, I don't know if the right word is impose, but at least they, they uh, or we, as it is, uh, decided to, to follow the EU and the, uh, I, I'm actually unsure what it's called in, in English, but, uh, but some sort of logging of your internet traffic centrally. So all, all the ISPs and and the telcos are, are going to be uh, told that they need to collect all the uh, traffic data uh, regarding who you email and uh, which IP address belongs to which person and so on. So, which is baffling for, as far as I'm concerned. I can't, I can't understand why uh, uh, we would want to do that, basically, because, well, there... The whole argumentation around it is based on we need to catch some terrorists. So this is the only way to do it, and, and everything. But everyone knows that the only real reason we're imposing stuff like this is to basically get all the file sharers and uh, stop that sort of thing. Because people who know what they're doing, uh, they won't be logged anyway uh, using uh, encrypted communications and whatever. So it's. Uh, it's interesting times to be an internet user in Norway as well. The really cool, yeah, and the really cool thing about Switzerland is um, the Swiss government refuses to conform to any EU rules or anything like that. They say, hey, if you if you download movies, you download anything that's um, violating copyrights, uh, and it's for yourself and you're not selling it. It's completely one hundred percent legal. Different. Yeah, little. Weird, and who, who'd have thought the Swiss government would have like a sort of less fair attitude to things that aren't? Necessary? <laughs> <laughs> that's a tr that's true. But the thing yeah. is, Nor Norway isn't a member of the EU either. But oh, we're still yeah, we're best in class in, in in sort of adopting directives and stuff. So uh, we're we're doing it without actually being a member and without actually being able to vote on them. But we just do it anyway because we're stu <laughs> stupid. I guess <laughs> I don't know. A couple because thousand you got years too much... ago, you were best in class in creating directives as you were burning down villages and stuff, but... <laughs> <laughs> that's um, uh, that's yeah. probably why, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're right, you know, I mean, there's that, that great 
quote from um, Benjamin Franklin, which was, was something like, you know, any any society that would, would give up liberty to gain security will deserve neither and, and lose both or something like that. But yeah. um, it, the, the most puzzling thing I find is, you know, you know how, um, I, I guess it's kind of the same as like the, the living the good life problem. Like, you know, you know when you're a kid and, and you think, oh, man, uh, yeah, I, I can't do all this stuff. Uh, I wish I was in high school. Then you know, then I could do all this, and then I'd be living the good life. And then you get in high school, and you're like, "Oh man, I wish I had a job. Then I have money. I could do all this stuff. Then I'll be living the good life." And you grow up, and you get a job, and you think, "Oh man, yeah, I, I got to buy a house." And uh, you know, the, the good life never seems to arrive. And it's it's kind of the same with uh, all these all these fucking crazy you know draconian laws that people seem to be passing. I kind of thought, gee. The, the voters are people that are, you know, should be our kind of age. And we've grown up in a, I would have thought, you know, a more liberal thinking kind of kind of society. And yet the, the laws are getting stricter and stricter. And, um, yeah, it baffles the shit out of me. I wonder, is it just sort of, you know, do did, did we have overprotective parents? or? Um, well, our parents were the, like, Children of the sixties, you know what I mean? <laughs> what what crazy yeah. time they? Yeah, that's, that's true um, enough. I, the thing is, as soon as someone mentions terrorism, everything goes, and that's uh, that's a basic problem. Uh, as as soon as you can, as soon as someone mentions that uh, as a particular reason to do something, it's more likely to get uh, pushed through. I must remember but, by to the way, that to my change requests. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Why, why do you need to do this change? Well, because of terrorists. All oh. of <laughs> cases doesn't make any sense at all. If you don't but it still imposes a, a problem for us, and, and 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 people can't. Yeah. Yeah. That and child pornography. You just mention terrorists or and child pornography, and you're done. Everything goes. Yep. And, and the CIA. That's uh, yeah. it, it, it. Flattens it, it. Flattens the debate. Thinking of you know where's the IT angle on this? If if um, yeah, <laughs> we don't we don't have an IT angle. I, wait wait, what? I want to hear this. We'll create on. one. We'll leave a one in. Um, in the you know if someone's collecting all this data, then there's got to be quite a back end system to try and collect. Nah, it, that, 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 that's, that's no problem data. at all. Really. That's definitely big no. data with quotes around it. Surely, no problem. We just hand it over to Sony. They know how to fix it and keep <laughs> track of it and everything. That's fine. No problem at all. Someone's just got a Splunk installation that would make you cry <laughs> because that's a hell of a syslog. Uh, yeah, it is. You know, Norway dot log. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, yeah. That's the uh, that's the beauty of the uh, the actual uh, uh, law they're making here is that they're just going going to impose this on all the ISPs and telcos and tell them you need to store this stuff, but it's not our problem how you do it as long as it's secure. Yeah, so define secure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, seriously, who's sort of offering the consultancy? Who who stands to make some money out of selling a system that would log something like that? Well, one yes. day they might they might just be trying to help you. Like one day, Christian, they might call you up and be like, "Mr. Moan, we've we've noticed that your um your VMs are having some high CPU ready time." Yeah. <laughs> then <laughs> I, I, I guess Duncan is going to sit and monitor that for us. So that will be fine. <laughs> Again, let's, let's get a get a, a, an IT angle back in. <laughs> um, 
a VDI environment. You massively overcommit memory and CPU in a VDI environment to get 80 VMs per host because you know that not all 80 of those are going to be busy simultaneously. And then someone decides to roll out SETI or you're, uh, <laughs> someone's had this brilliant idea that they dug up from 10 years ago. They think, oh, we're actually going to get our workstations to do our back-end business processing on a grid computing environment, but doesn't realize you're running VDI, and then suddenly all of you need to go and buy a whole, whole load of new hosts. Um, yeah. We had a classic... I guess it's, an, it's the same sort of thing that ISPs are suddenly thinking, oh, crap. You know, we, we, we'd assume that we're never going to need all this bandwidth we're never going to have this much bandwidth requested and we suddenly are and we're getting charged more for it so we've got to pass that back or find some way of clawing it back yeah um but i mean they they can just do it through through access fees you know not necessarily as long as, long as they don't start saying, okay you know netflix um your business is making money on the back of our infrastructure they should just charge netflix more for the bandwidth that they use not then go and hit up all the ISP customers or the Netflix customers and say, okay, if you want to access Netflix, then you're going to have to pay an extra five bucks a month on top of your internet connection. You know, that, that's pretty messed up. Mm. I didn't think. ISPs try to sort of, um, when iPlayer started to get popular, um, ISPs tried to sort of bill BBC for it and the BBC said, fine, we just, we'll, we'll put an ACL and we, we won't uh, allow iPlayer access to your ISP. Um, oh really? Yeah, I'm sure they got they started to get funny about it or threatened that that was what they were going to do. Right. Uh, when this sort of first kicked off, and I know bandwidth is bandwidth must be getting cheaper as time progresses because there's more fibers going around the world. The speed of data through those fibers has got to be increasing as technology increases. So I don't know whether bandwidth is going quite up with Moore's law, but you know, um, eight years ago I think I paid. Forty-five pounds a month for a half meg connection, and now you, we're conditioned to pay. You know, to believe that paying more than ten pounds a month for twenty meg is a rip-off. Um, yeah. Dan, so, I'm talking to you guys from a one hundred meg uh, Swiss uh, provider connection for seventy-five Swiss francs per month. I hope you choke on your beer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what like Christian? What are you paying Norway, man? It must be some ludicrous amount of cash. Yeah, well, everything here is a ludicrous amount of cash, so that's uh, fine. Uh, I, I think uh, currently I don't have more than I have an ADSL line, which is I think nine megabits downstream and about seven hundred k upstream or something. Just basically because I don't have any other other options here where I'm where I'm living. Uh, the the uh, the uh, there is no fiber connection available, and That's we're still doing five times faster than I've got. <laughs> yeah, well, it costs me. Uh, uh, what, what's the pound in currently com- uh, compared to Norwegian? I think it's eight kroner or something. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. About that, it was about eight, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's probably a lot, around fifty pounds a month. Oh uh, my god! Jeez. Yeah, that, that is quite pricey, I guess. Yeah, it's quite but ridiculous. We can, we can all thank our stars that we uh, we don't live in Greenland, which, as far as I can tell, is the most expensive internet access I've ever seen, because <laughs> um, there's not that many people that live in Greenland, and there's no, only one fiber going there. Mostly, and, if you did, you'd be a, a native, uh, just catching fish out of the ice and stuff. Exactly. You care about F- the fish internet. don't need internet access. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but well, they, do need it. they pay a lot, and they pay. It's all metered. And it's 
obscene it's sort of you know matters of euros per meg or something stupid like that um, i had a well, scenario where i had to transfer uh, an esx iso to greenland it was cheaper to burn it to dvd and um uh, ups overnight courier it to greenland than it was to uh drop yep. it over the wire welcome to my world of shipping <laughs> i'll yeah. tell you what though i mean we we were um we were looking at one point actually um uh, building data centers in, in Greenland because you know it's kind of uh, it, well it's not really halfway but it's you know it's in between the UK and the US and you can build really really eco efficient data centers yeah, there. You've got the latency is great because um, so because there is there's only a couple of fibers but I think there's only one or two fibers if you look on the latest sort of cable and wireless map I think it shows the, the number of fibers that are there and that there's not much contention on it and you've got a, it is equidistant for your um, round trip time but yeah you pay through the nose unless you've got your own backbone um, unless you work for a, like a global investment bank hey oh, this, <laughs> this was for a, a, again a, a pretty large firm but they were still having to pay pay big bucks for it um, Iceland is, I'm told is better you still have the same, not quite as good geographic advantages, but um, you've got plenty of cooling and cheap power. Well, nowadays... Geothermal power in Iceland Nowadays, they had a little problem with their economy recently. Yes. Yeah, but that, don't, the Dutch and the English paid off that, so that's fine. Uh, they just won't <laughs> pay it back, so that's no problem anymore. Yeah, we own them, that's, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but speaking of... of uh, Pricing. I mean, uh, I've seen some satellite link bills that would uh, make Norwegian prices seem pretty decent, actually. Uh, uh, so, of course, having a lot of ships going around the world, trying to communicate uh, through satellite is going to cost you an arm and a leg as well. Besides the fact and, that most of your boats have to probably go through the uh, Gulf of Aden there. Is, is that where the yeah, we've had, are? We, we have had a, a couple of boats go through there, but most part of our vessels are based in the Mediterranean and go transatlantic to, to Houston. So we're, we're not that much in that area, actually. But, but the cost of actually doing communications on, uh, on a vessel uh, is insane. And by... I mean, you you pay through the nose, and and you still get like thousand milliseconds of latency on it. So, you you get into a couple of problems that you wouldn't normally uh, uh, look into that much. Uh, trying to move files from shore to a vessel, for for instance, is uh, is still problematic, and you you might actually have to zip it up and spread it over different archives to make sure you don't have to retransmit the entire package and stuff like that. So. And it's going to cost you as well. So there's this, this landline based bandwidth is one thing, but try offshore based. That's, uh, that's really interesting. You, you won't be doing too much cloud bursting over that sort of link. Then. <laughs> <laughs> no. There's been some great, great talk about uh, cloud bursting on Twitter and about, you know, there's definitely some people that don't like it as a concept. And get get quite quite uh, upset when you mention it. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's um it, I guess it's um hang on it, yeah 
it depends on what what really what you define as cloud-based. I guess. I mean, I don't I don't really see much of a use case for it outside of the likes of you know Facebook and and banks with um, you know grid grid type infrastructure and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it seems to just get a lot of attention and and. Um, I mean, one of, one of the things I'm a massive, massive uh, proponent of is is simplicity. And um, I mean, that was one of the things I, I talked about in the session as well, was just that we tend to build these massively complex infrastructure solutions to, you know, what is fundamentally an, an application um, design issue. And, you know, find maybe building a massively expensive, complicated infrastructure is still cheaper than, than re-architecting an app. But you know, that doesn't necessarily mean you, that that's the right thing you should do, in my opinion. No. Um, and uh, I believe it was actually only today that you know, throwing hardware at a solution doesn't necessarily... You know, there's only so long you can throw hardware at something for uh, before you need to start thinking about, well, actually... Why couldn't we just write it better in the first place? And I've certainly worked in environments where the the fix is, let me see. Well, it will take us six months to recode, and six months worth of time, or it's going to take us twenty thousand dollars to go and upgrade all the servers to whatever the latest and greatest hardware is right now, and it will fix it for two years. Yeah, yeah, and and then I'll. Uh, and then, like, point, turn around. Two years, I won't be CIO anymore, so uh, I can tell it yeah. how much I made it faster and screw the rest. And, uh, yeah, I've worked in environments where it's like, oh, our, our code sucks. Um, give us more resources, even though it won't fix the problem, and they can fake it until we leave. Um, no, the prime, prime example was um, an application that uh, had a memory leak, and it would fall over every two days. And the resolution was, well, we're going to upgrade the service to 64-bit so we can put more memory in them. So, yes, it'll still leak memory, but it'll take longer to run out of memory. And they, they, so they could, if, if we can eke it out so we'll only have it once a week, then we can deal with it. Exactly. And, and that's, um, that's what you, you know, when, when people, <laughs> you've got to wonder if the application developers, when they look at cloud computing and, and they do stuff like, oh, hey, why don't you have a resize feature if that's exactly what they're thinking. Oh, memory leak? Oh, I can just get more RAM. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I, I guess when someone then gets the bill for an EC2 instance that's just leaked a couple of terabytes of memory, um, that uh, perhaps they'll have to be, be, be forced to uh, recode a bit more. Yeah, I would, I, would, I would certainly like to think so, but um, yeah, you're definitely going to wonder. Actually, speaking of sort of cloud architectures and um, something that isn't big that uh, I don't know if you guys use, but uh, do you use that? Use what? Sorry, uh, I'm uh, It's kind of like I think Mac guys tend to use it instead of OneNote, and I got into it because it works better on Android than anything else. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's like a OneNote. It's in sort of a note-taking application that you can cut and paste paint web pages into, or you can. Um, Put, drop text into it, all sorts of little fun. Oh, you're things. talking about Evernote? Yeah. Oh, sorry, man, I totally, I, I totally didn't hear what you said. All right. Yeah. <laughs> have, have you come across that one, Ed? Yeah, sure. I use yeah. Evernote pretty regularly. 
In fact, I mean, I use it for the, the call notes for this, and it's uh, I've actually just switched to using the Chrome app version. But, but they've uh, published their architecture, and it's brilliant. It's hosted in a conventional colo. Um, it's you'd like it, Stuart. They've kept it simple. Um, it's they seem to have a, a way. Basically, you know, you've got application servers that they're, they're sort of sharded servers that are a self-contained unit for 100,000 users or nine. Uh, yeah, I think it was about 100,000 users, and they've got currently got 90 of them, but they can expand that. That's, wait, you know, really, wait, really. Sorry, maybe I don't understand British English, but did you say sharded users? Yeah, not shard. <laughs> not shard. <laughs> no, shard as in a, a segment. Okay. <laughs> what is shard? What what the hell is shard? I've never heard of that. Uh, I think that's when you fart and follow through. And he said we got a lot of shard <laughs> users. Uh, yeah, I was a bit confused about that being a, a U.S. English guy. All <laughs> uh, right, no. Well, there you go. You learned something new. I, I think you need to add that to the um, the VTube dictionary. <laughs> about about. <laughs> Don't confuse your shards with shards, otherwise you're going to have really messy data. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I really, um, I really get a lot into um, that that kind of stuff, and and maybe maybe part of it um, heralds back to I, I sort of first my first started life in IT as, as a web developer, and um, and that's why if you ever see me, you know, espousing the virtues of JavaScript, and and in fact, you know, you know, um, VCO uh, Orchestrator uses JavaScript is the the language that you write the workflows in. And uh, I'll write the workflow components in. And on the one hand, I think that makes absolutely no sense because most server admins out there are not going to have a clue about JavaScript. But for me personally, I thought it was completely awesome. But um, yeah, there's some really cool um, websites out there that cover that kind of stuff. But it's one highscalability.com. Um, and they. They really focus on the, the kind of infrastructure designs behind a lot of websites and um, you know web services. It's really super interesting stuff. Yeah, it just seems to be the way. I, I'm guessing you know they've got some intelligence about when uh, someone signs up. It has a quick look through all of the available shards and it's like right, who's available? Uh, shard one one four six has got some space on it. We'll dump the user onto that one. Um, and so their capacity planning is quite basic because they've got this figure of a certain number of users per shard, and if they're starting to run out of space, well, we'll, we'll build another one. Or if it's a, I'm guessing the, you know a template. I think they're using they're using physical servers. They're not really virtualizing. Um, yeah, we'll put another server in. Um, and as long as they've got enough spare capacity um, and their pipeline for deploying extra servers is there, then they're not going to have a problem. Um, yeah, and it, I, th I think that um, you know that kind of placement issue is is probably the number one thing in in certainly in large scale infrastructures at the moment. It, um, the number one problem to solve, and you know, it, I mean, you can you can take two two kinds of approach. Uh, you know, the, in in order to solve that problem, the first thing you have to do is is figure out when you're going to classify something as being full. And as you said, you know, you can you can do it in terms of okay, we're going to have ninety thousand users per pod or, or, or whatever they call it. And you know, if you think it was a VDI infrastructure, you could say the same thing. We're going to have one thousand users per pod, and when we hit one thousand, we're going to go and buy another one. Or you could, you know, figure out 
um, what metrics to look at and what values of what metrics um, yeah. determine when when something's full. And yeah, you know, I mean that's pretty easy for CPU, but when you start looking at stuff like memory, I mean, what what do you look at there? You can't really look at balloon driver activity because that's going to kick in irrespective of whether there's contention on the box or not. Do you look at uh, you know paging activity within the guest? I'll, I'll post the uh, the blog link. Uh, on the show notes, but I mean they do some. It sounds like they do some very base virtualization. You essentially have, they run two VMs on each physical server. One is the the primary VM, the other one is a backup VM for the next server along in the line, and so they right. can just cross replicate in the, quite a nice little way. So if, if you lose a host, then the the replicated VM starts up on the next next node and of course Evernote with unless you're using the web client in which case you'd be a little bit screwed but because it's a client based application people aren't necessarily going to notice an outage in a shard as long as it boots up within a, a minute or so so you've got that resilience to uh, you know not requiring 100% connectivity which I think is another stage when you've got when you've got a scale application that can it withstand an out um, a loss of connectivity to the back-end database for a few seconds. I know so many apps that if IIS uh, or the, the, the .NET layer isn't talking to the database or lose its connection, then you've got to restart IIS, which is kind of shitty. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> you then sort of find yourself having to restart web servers to get a service back over because the cluster's failed over. And so yeah. done what it's supposed yeah. to do. It's done its high availability, but your web servers, which are supposed to be highly available, ended up being the weakest link in the chain. Yeah, exactly. I've definitely seen solutions do that that kind of thing for <laughs> where they, you know, they kind of put in a put in another node and then put some other single point of failure in front of the two nodes and say, oh yeah, well, we're highly available. We've got these two nodes. So, but what about that single thing you put in front of it? Oh yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty silly. Sort of apps that are supposed to be really big and scale out, you know, uh, I'm sort of thinking about big collaboration applications, uh, sort of document document sharing ones. I don't think SharePoint is a culprit of it, but I can think of uh, certainly another a couple of SharePoint's old competitors from years gone by that uh, are strangely non-resilient to failures in their SQL database. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think that whole non um, uh, yeah, I, ha- I hate to go back to my session at the VMark, <laughs> but we, I mean, no, we did talk about, um, <laughs> we did, um, yeah, that, that was one of the, the other things I think, you know, when you have a look at the, um, the big, um, Amazon outage the other week and one of the things that came out in, in the, you know, as, aside from their root cause analysis, um, some of their sort of remediating steps that they're going to take is to hold a whole bunch of you know webinars and stuff like that to um, you know f- tell people as if they didn't know already that if you want to run your app in the cloud you need to design for failure and if you have a look at the company you work for today what is is a state of failure look like it's people running around screaming I'll just call it Wednesday usually um. <laughs> <laughs> but people go nuts right like if if there's a failure um, you know, scenario in in most companies today, it's a cause for alarm and panic. It is by no means graceful and is certainly not normal. And you know, if people want to take advantage of these cheap um, infrastructure as a service type things, then they need to fix up their apps first. Yeah. I, I get, um, so you know, designed for failure. I remember it coming in as a bit of a surprise when uh, 
Apple when they launched their sort of their uh, XServe, the the disk array, and everyone's like, "You're running a disk array on using like non-SCSI drives. That's stupid. Why would you do that?" And they're like, "Well, you know, have high high levels of redundancy, cheap drives. Expect them to fail. Just replace them more often." Um, what's it that kind of worked out well for them because they don't sell the XServe anymore. Um, <laughs> so yeah, my my argument kind of sucks a little bit, but yeah, the. It, Point being that if you're not designing for failure, not expecting it, then you're gonna you're gonna end up with some nasty surprises. Mm. But that's where the uh, the entire uh, part of uh, rewriting the apps comes into into play, basically, because a lot of the stuff we're running now, at least in a small business SMB market, does uh, that I work in is uh, it, it's single application stuff. It's pretty simple stuff that could easily be done pretty much uh, anywhere, uh, hosted on basically anything, as long as the users get a front end for it. It doesn't have to be... In reality, most of the apps we're using uh, can't... I, I can't really see why we would need to install them locally at all. But that's how the applications are developed and how they are being used. Uh, but as far as if if software developers really get around to to uh, to developing end user products that run uh, not on their computers or, or more on netbooks or whatever, we'll be moving more towards some kind of scenario where the the actual cloud stuff makes a lot of sense. But for Right now, as far as I can see, uh, for businesses my size and, and, and smaller, I don't think there's that huge demand for the cloud services we're seeing, basically because it doesn't match any of their business criteria at the moment anyway. It's, it's as far as I can see, it's, it's scaled for much larger, larger organizations, perhaps besides Google Apps or the hosted Microsoft Exchange stuff which would make a lot of sense for a small startup or a small 10, 15 people co- company. Uh, but a lot of the other stuff is, is is applications you need to install locally anyway. So yeah. right now, we, we, we won't be getting there anywhere soon unless the every kind of software develop, developer out there starts developing, developing their apps in a fashion that you could actually make them hosted somewhere. And everyone develops a Windows anyway, so yeah. you're I mean, kind of stuck there. Do you think some there. of these providers, uh, particularly sort of software as a service or platforms as a service providers, should be more transparent about their their infrastructures? How do, how do you mean, like the? Well, in terms of uh, you know the the various ones that. Uh, you mean like Heroku? Yeah, so the ones Her- that got, Heroku got bitten by um, out, you know ones that are using public cloud and that got bitten yeah. by it because they clearly made the. Uh, decision at the financial level to host in the cheapest zone, um, yeah, and as a result, yeah, their client, their, their clients and customers who custom clients of their customers probably lost out, and leaving some people looking pretty red faced over it. Uh, yeah, so H- Heroku a, a more transparent layer on it. Um, Heroku was like that. They, um, you know, that's a that's a Ruby um, based. 
platform as a service provider. Um, they, they actually got bought by Salesforce.com uh, a little while ago, and yeah, they they got stung by the EC2 outage, and I mean they fucking should have known better. Um, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, just reading chat. Um, yeah, with Salesforce. I mean, Salesforce have been doing platform as a service as long as I can remember. I just remember someone, but the first time I came across it. Uh, from clients that used to use a CRM package called ACT. They said, oh, yeah, we can do ACT on uh, on Internet Explorer with this salesforce.com. I was like, what the hell is this? I was like, uh, yeah, it just seems to be like ACT in a web page. Ooh, this is clever. Bear in mind, this is about 2002, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so yeah, anything, anything, any web applications were, were considered neat because we didn't have much that anything more advanced than Hotmail at the time. <laughs> so... Um, but you, you do have to wonder. Like I, I, I agree with what um, Christian was saying. That, and you know, I, I think it is much more applicable to to large enterprises than than what people may think. And yeah, I mean that that's one of the um, kind of issues I have with um, the vCloud API is that they stick a vApp in the path of you know of, of a VM. You can't you can't you can't have a URI. That leads to a VM without going through a VAP, and all your provisioning operations and all that kind of stuff is all VAP related. Mm-hmm. And um, coming back to what I was saying before about you know infrastructure should just be simple and you know for all intents and purposes stupid. The the way to map a relationship between different VMs, in my opinion, shouldn't be done at that core infrastructure level. It should be something higher up the stack. And you know VAPs as a as a construct are maybe an intermediary step. Um, that developers or you know, ISVs may take as a you know a form of software distribution these virtual appliances, but I think in you know it's not going to be too long before they start saying well hell why are we even doing that let's just go to a SaaS model and and be done with it. Yeah, but don't, and then don't you guys don't you guys think it's a bit difficult for infrastructure to be uh, kind of considered stupid? I mean, when it comes to storage and everything like that, I mean, if you think about it, uh, network stuff, yeah, I would love it if it was stupid. Maybe that's well, just my one job. big flat layer to everywhere. Or... No, um, I, I mean, like speaking of uh, networking, I mean, there was a really, really good article called The Rise of the Stupid Network by this, uh, uh, what was his name, Eisenberg, uh, David Eisenberg. Absolutely, I've read that. That's, that's part of what I was referencing. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, you know, and, and, and much of the stuff that he wrote about in there applies to just infrastructure in general and, and computing today. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, when, when I say stupid or simple, it, it's kind of with the, uh, you know, the Einsteinian as simple as possible but no simpler. Um, and, you know, that still doesn't preclude it from being complex. But, yeah. Yeah, when you have a look at what you need to do in order to enable something like long distance V motion, and you know having, you know potentially having active active storage, you know geographically dispersed data centers and a stretch layer two in between them with certain latency, and yeah, putting in all that kind of infrastructure complexity for what? So you can protect your shitty app that, <laughs> that it doesn't have a proper DR model. Um, yeah, I. I just don't like that kind of stuff. Sorry to EMC and Cisco and anyone else who's working on that. <laughs> no, I've seen people that have you know, demanded that and you do kind of think, well, for why? Oh, because our website can't go down. It's like, well, why are we hosting it ourselves? Um, yeah. 
Cool. Excellent. So, let me uh, take us from that shit we were talking about and take us to some other <laughs> new shit that we're talking about here. Um, vSphere 4.0 Quick Start Guide. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Stu, you, you, yeah. you contributed. Tell us something about that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, no, no, no. It's, it, that's a good question, man, because... Um, you know, I think it, it's easy, and I, I certainly used to fall into this category, right? When I was when I was living back in Australia, and you know, you sort of see all this stuff on the net, and and yeah, stuff happening in London or stuff happening in in the US, and and kind of feel left out, and sort of think, oh, gee, like you know, if if I was there, I'd I'd go to that user group or I'd go to that conference, or you know, wow, what's you know. Any, anyone can do this kind of stuff. Like the way I got started on my blog is is a pretty funny kind of story. But um, you know, it's not the the people that that do this kind of stuff. Like people like us, we're not we're not smarter than anyone else. We're just you know, we're just just pu- putting ourselves out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just, just and, stupid enough to talk about it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and so even, that's how. Yeah, um, maybe even consider us assholes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, that works too. Yeah, well, yeah, speak for yourself, Ed. But um, mm. no, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um, yeah, so how I got involved in that was literally, you know, I I just had this blog, and and you get to know people in the community, and you know, Duncan um, Duncan Epping was was putting the book together, and you know, he had a couple of other guys, and um, he he had someone lined up to do a section. And they dropped out last minute, and so he was like, "Oh shit, who can I ask?" Oh, oh yeah, I know Stu. Yeah, he's he's written some pretty cool stuff. I'll I'll ask him. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's really how it worked. It was the same with the um, you know the the Power CLI book that just came out. That was um, written by uh, Alan Renouf and Luke Deakins, and um, yeah, which John will be Mad. announcing the the winner of our, our giveaway uh, competition on the. Uh the accompanying post to this by the way okay <laughs> cool um so yeah it was it was the same thing there like i i um somehow was the technical editor for that book which is a complete joke because those guys know far more about powershell or power CLI than than what i do obviously um but again it was kind of like look yeah, we need someone that we that's kind of known in the community and and knows about power CLI and yeah, your name just comes up. So I definitely recommend to anyone out there who's sort of thinking, oh, you know, yeah, I've, I've, yeah, every, everyone's got an opinion. Um, get in there. <laughs> I'm getting goaded on chat here to swear more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's sorry, the, that's, that's me. That's the problem with I'm, having I'm, a reputation that you're supposed to be keeping up to it. In, in, American, I in American English, I'm so called breaking your balls. That's the term. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I try not to um to swear too gratuitously. Anyone I'm like really angry or uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I haven't been drinking yet. I'm saving that. I'm gonna get on the get on some uh, you know Battlefield Bad Company too after this. And uh, yeah, it's abuse that small children on the internet. <laughs> Battlefield Bad Company. Yeah, 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 man. It's it sounds game. like the worst '80s band ever. <laughs> Fighting with shoulder pads. 
That's a twin act with Twisted Sister, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's all good. It's all good. So, um, do you think you're going to get into doing any more books? It's, it's it's something I don't know if I'd have the patience to write a whole book. Uh, no way, no way. I mean, seeing. Um, so yeah, I mean, with the, with the Quick Start Guide, you know, it was cool because there was there was a lot of authors. So we it kind of got broken up, and we all did our own little chapters. So like, I, I wrote the networking chapter um, in there. And um, so, <laughs> if any of you have that book and you see any anything wrong, it's, that was me. And um, it's a, it was a good yeah. little book to dip it dip in and out of that. Um, oh man, that that the form factor of that book, I was really happy. And you know, the thing I liked the most about that is that it was self published, and so we could make it really, really cheap. Like I hate how expensive technical books yeah. are. I mean, I think Dun- Duncan and Frank's. Um, yeah, the, the the orange book. Yeah, the HAD. Yeah, exactly. just be known now. As the book yeah, um, yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it's. it's I think I, I tweeted at the time. It's the same price as buying a kebab. Yeah, and it <laughs> it lasts you at least a day longer than a kebab. Um, yeah, and probably tastes better. <laughs> My more um, nutrition. You know, it's it's a really fantastic bit of uh, bit of kit to have. And, but it is a shame that sometimes you've got to pay. The, you know, for the equipment, the design book, which. A lovely book, but I'm not going to pay twenty pounds for a copy on Kindle. Uh, I did. Yeah. I I read it. Decent book. Yeah. Yeah. Good. They have to yeah. Have a, a Kindle loan or whatever they they do like that. I've, I've, I've and that, <laughs> I think the um you know one one of the things that was a, re- a real eye opener when um doing the Power CLI book was just the you know you can see where the expense comes from. Because there are so many people involved in the production, like there must have been like ten different editors. For, there, there was like the copy editor, there was, there was me, the technical editor. There was some other editor for like the flow of of the book and this, that, and the other. And there were just so many people involved. Um, do, do you feel they all add value to it, or uh, well, justified their, their own existence? <laughs> I mean, uh, to be, to be fair, the the main um, other editor, which um, actually most of the authors and I were dealing with, um, yeah, she she was awesome. She definitely added value. But yeah, all the other people behind the scenes, you know, I think. And when you have a look at the Orange Book, you know, that's got a super clean layout. Like, I really appreciate the uh, the design aspects of that book. Like, aside completely aside from the content, I'm pretty sure most of that was done by Frank. Yeah, and yeah, so. Yeah, so if, as long as you've got someone that has half an idea of how to make something look clean, um, yeah, just self-publish, man. Go for the go for the volume and low price. Speaking yeah, of, can, speaking about could, books, have you seen the new uh, announcement on um, on Duncan's site on Yellow Bricks about the uh, 5.0 books that are coming out this? Uh, yeah, yeah. VMware Press thing. Yeah, I got I got hit up by them for asking if I wanted to uh, review some books. Which <laughs> I said, sure, send me something and I'll write about. It. Um, yeah. Be interested to to read about uh, VMware Five. Um, quite how if I wonder if they'll send the book out before the uh, software comes out because that's quite unusual because the um, often it takes a while for the V next uh, book to or, you know, anyone to be have a book published in time that hasn't been hastily rushed through beta that this one won't have been done um, and, and hoping that all the content in there is good uh, I know you know, back in the day when you had to sort of wait for the latest uh, advanced technical design guide before you could really say yeah that's right I know this now I've read the book um, there's 
a much wider choice of books coming out. So I guess people are having to push that much faster to have a um, something published the day of uh, general release. I'm, I'm guessing they're going to coincide the releases of these and in, in the next version. So probably, I don't know, wild guess at VMworld US or something. It's looking uh, the, what there's the the Pearson side is saying is just fall 2011 for the three books that they have announced the uh, storage design and implementation in VMware VSware by I don't know Mustafa Khalil mm. and then there's some administering VMware SRM 5.x by Mike Laverick and then there's the Cody Bunch book which is automating day-to-day administration of VMware VSware 5.x. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, obviously, but yeah, it's um, you're right. You know, I remember back in the day there was just that one book, um, you know, by by Mr. VM Guru himself and uh, and Ron Oglesby. Yeah, and that, that was the Bible, really, wasn't it? it? Exactly, exactly. And then you know there was Mike Mike Laverick was pretty much the only blogger, and you know, so many people just I learn everything by them, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. As long as you could remember the line that's come off, you know, check disk and DF, and then that's all you need to do. You could pretend you knew VMware. So. Uh, that's it, man. And, and they may now even pre- learn it. So. Yeah, forget about you know resource pools. You've you've got the nice command. You can just manage it that way. And uh, yeah. Thanks a lot for <laughs> listening to VSoup 10. Uh, it was a little raw. We we hope you enjoy it. Um, you can see all of us probably next time we're recording at uh, Tech Field Day 6. Until then, follow us at, at um, vsoup underscore podcast or um, check us out at www.vsoup.net. Thank you.